So we're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, we'll be reading verses 35 and following. It says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of other, some other grain. But God gives a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another of the stars. For stars differs from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of, of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the, in, the, does the, perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well, some of you may have heard of a theological position called postmillennialism. Uh, postmillennialism, it's a big word, but basically what postmillennialists believe is that the world is going to move and kind of be Christianized, that most people in the world are going to become Christians, and kind of the kingdom of God is going to come on the earth before Jesus comes back. Uh, so Jesus, uh, justice is going to reign. Most people on the earth will become Christians before Jesus comes back. That's what post-millennialists believe. And there's kind of a, a, a historical background for uh, how that kind of developed and why people kind of started to espouse that idea. And uh, part of the impetus for it goes back to like the 17th to the 19th century. So beginning in the 17th century, then in the 18th century, uh, you had these remarkable movements of God. So you had the first great awakening. So you had these great figures like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, and you had uh, like literally millions of people hearing the gospel, and you had numbers of people coming to know the Lord. I think they said that the church attendance doubled during that time, and you had this great movement of God. And then after that, you had the Second Great Awakening, and during the Second Great Awakening, not only did you have an increase in, in people becoming Christians, uh, but you had it kind of seeping into society. You had the formation of uh, mission organizations and seminaries and Christian schools, 
And it also started to impact kind of the social order. Uh, during that time, abolition, uh, the movement for abolition started to, to gain momentum. And, and slavery started to be eradicated. And so people are thinking, this is it. Uh, people are coming to know Christ. The kingdom of God is coming to the earth. Things are getting better. Um, slavery is being abolished. God's ways are coming to the earth. The kingdom of God is going to be on earth as it is in heaven, as it says in the Lord's Prayer. And so you get to like the 18th century, 19th century, 19th century, 18th century, and most people are post-millennialists who are Christians. It's like Jesus is going to come back after the kingdom of God comes to the earth because everything is headed in that direction. And then you have an event that just kind of shook everybody's belief and shook everyone's position. It was World War I. So you have this belief that everything is getting better. Christianity is starting to take root. God's justice is reigning. Then you have World War I, and you see 15 to 22 million people killed, up to 40 million injured. You see chemical warfare used for one of the first times. You see the depth of evil. Then after that, you have World War II. And we all know what happened in World War II with the injustices with the Holocaust and, and so many terrible things that happened and the, the blood and the carnage and the evil that was put on display. And you get after that and then that movement kind of fizzled out. And, and you get to today and there aren't many people who are still post-millennials. They still exist, but most people, you know, they stop believing that. Stop believing that people are going to become Christians, that justice is going to reign on the earth until after Christ comes back. And, and, and what happened is they started to just lose hope because their hopes were dashed by these two events, World War I, World War II. And uh, I think as human beings, we want to believe that our society is moving somewhere. You know, and you think about the last two years, and uh, for many people, the last two years have just been kind of shocking and difficult and hard to wrap our minds around. And I think one of the reasons why it's been hard for us is because, you know, maybe we didn't say it out loud, but we kind of believed that our society was moving somewhere. Like we'd made progress in certain areas. For example, we had antibiotics. We had modern medicine. We had science. And to think that a virus could shut our society down and impact us in such a way, it was almost laughable to think something like that. You know, you think about communism, and it's like, all right, we've moved beyond that. And yet communism is still alive, and it's kind of rearing its head even in our country. You know, we think about slavery. It's like, as a society, we've moved beyond that. We've moved beyond this, uh, slavery. And in our society, we have, but you think about it throughout the world, there's more slaves today than there were during pre-Civil War times. They estimate up to 26-plus million people today are in slavery. But we want to think that there's progress. Uh, we read stories about what happened in the Holocaust, the atrocities that were committed, and we think we've moved beyond that. Something like that could never happen today. And similar things are happening today. You know, you think about what's happening in China with the Uyghurs, and maybe not to the same scale, but similar things are happening today. Think about racism. You know, we thought we had moved beyond that, but racism still exists. 
in our society. We wanted to move the, think that we moved beyond what our, what, where we were when, at our ancestors. We wanted to think that we'd made progress in our society, but I think what's so jarring is you think about the last two years, and it just kind of reveals to us we haven't made any progress as a society. If anything, we've gone backwards on a lot of these issues. And I think because of that, people have trouble believing in hope. People have trouble believing that the future is going to be better than the past. Josh Waden, who's a creative, uh, creative screenwriter um, known for his work on Toy Stories and the Avengers, was interviewed by Entertainment Weekly, and he was asked if he had hope that the human race is becoming smarter and better. Whedon said this. He said, I think we're actually becoming stupider and more petty. What's going on in this country and many countries is beyond depressing. It's terrifying. Sometimes I have to remember who I'm talking to. I'll say something about how terrible things are and meaningless, and the world is headed toward the destruction and war and apocalypse. And at one point, my daughter goes, hey, I'm eight. She doesn't want to hear that stuff. But I can't believe anybody thinks we're actually going to make it before we destroy the planet. I honestly think it's inevitable. I have no hope. I want to be wrong more than anything. I hate to say it. It's that line from the Lord of the Rings, I give hope to men. I keep none for myself. Kind of a depressing worldview, but I think that's where a lot of people in our society are at. Uh, there was a, a poll that was done by Rasmus, and I think it's been done every year for quite some time. Uh, but as recently as 2019, just a few years ago, they asked people the question, uh, when you think about our nation in the context of history, are America's best days in the future or in the past? As recently as 2019, 54% of people said it's in the future. The future's bright. The future's good. 2020, that number dipped to 47%. It was just conducted a couple months ago, and it was down to 33% of people who believe that. Hope is hard to come by these days. It's hard to believe that the future is going to be better than the past. And yet, in this passage, Paul points us to a future that's better than the past. It's not found in our immediate circumstances, our immediate future, but our ultimate future. And we know as believers that future is the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ provides us with great hope even in the midst of darkness, even in a hopeless world. And in this passage, Paul is going to highlight three ways that the resurrection kind of intersects with our everyday lives. Three ways that it can provide us with hope for the future. The first way it intersects with our lives is it provides us hope of restoration. There were some in Paul's day who were saying, how can there be a resurrection? Now, we know as believers, we believe that there's a resurrection. But the argument they were making was probably pretty practical. What they're saying is, okay, so a person dies, they're buried, put into a tomb, and it's not long before their body starts to decay. You know, and it's not that long comparatively that, you know, there's not much left other than bones. So how can a person, even if God were to put life in their body, I mean, how could that person be raised from the dead? I mean, their body is gone. You know, or they think about things like, okay, so what if someone, you know, is sawed in half, sawed in ten pieces? I mean, they don't really have a body left. So how can God raise that person from the dead? Or what if someone is burned or cremated? I mean, how can God raise that person from the dead? And so it's kind of like a practical question. It's, you know, if a person, their body is disfigured, 
is no longer intact, how can God raise that person from the grave? And I think, but I think what's beneath that question, or beneath that argument, is this belief that there's some issues, there's some situations that even God can't fix. I mean, God could conceivably raise a person to life, but if their body is too far gone, I mean, how could God raise them to life? It's this idea that there's some situations that are too dark, that are too difficult, too hopeless, even for God. I think as human beings living in this fallen world, I think sometimes we buy into that lie. Sometimes we get set in our ways and we believe that the future is not going to be better than the past. We get into this belief that there's some situations that are too big even for God. Our bodies age, we get aches and pains that don't get better. Sometimes there's nothing left to do that can fix it. And, and there's always this temptation to believe that the grave is the end. That our situation is hopeless and, and dark and the future is not bright. And if we believe that, if we believe that there's some circumstances that are too severe, too hopeless for God, we're not going to walk around with joy and hope and peace. We're not going to have the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Paul goes on to tell these Corinthians who believe this, foolish. He says, you're foolish to believe that God cannot raise someone from the grave. And he gives a couple of lines of evidence. First thing he says, so you know a seed. You, you plant a seed, and a seed doesn't grow unless it dies. And what he means by that is it doesn't grow unless it's put into the ground, and then when it's put into the ground, the seed has to split apart. Now, you put the seed into the ground, and when, after you put it into the ground, it looks like there's nothing there. It looks like it's gone. It looks hopeless. It looks dead. But God brings a plant from that seed. And in the same way, Paul says, your situation, it might seem hopeless. It might seem like the situation is over. It might seem like someone is in the grave and their situation is hopeless, but God can bring something beautiful out of that situation. He goes on and talks about the different kinds of animals. So each animal has a different body. Each planetary body has a different structure. Stars, moon, uh, sun. And, and the reason he points out those things is basically to argue, so if God can create all of these different animals, a horse looks different than a pig, that looks different than a dog, looks different than a human being. If God can create the sun that looks different than the moon, that looks different than the earth. If God can create all of these bodies and design each and every one of them, do you think the resurrection is too much for him? Do you think that God can't raise the dead? Do you think that no matter what that body looks like, God can bring it together into a new body and raise them to new life? And so Paul says that God is the God of the restoration. God is the one who brings life out of death. And sometimes in the world that we live in, sometimes it can seem hopeless. It can seem like our best days are behind us. But we serve a God of the restoration. No matter how dark and how difficult our circumstances might be, God can bring beauty out of ashes and bring us to new life. Sometimes we have trouble believing that. And one thing we can do as believers when we have trouble believing that is look to God's Word, because in God's Word we see stories of restoration. We see people who were broken that God made whole. We see people who were dead that God made alive. 
We see that people who are guilty and in bondage that God set free. And as we read God's word, it gives us hope that there is a God of restoration. And it bolsters our hope of the resurrection. The American Bible Study, with the assistance of uh, Harvard University's Human Flourishing Program, did a survey recently during the pandemic, and they wanted to see what effect, if any, Bible reading has on people's outlook on life. And so they surveyed about 1,000 people uh, over a six-month period, uh, six months uh, between the surveys, and they found some remarkable results. They found that people who read the Bible frequently rated themselves 33 points more hopeful than irregular scripture readers. They also found that there was a positive correlation between scripture reading and hopefulness. The more scripture someone read, the more hopeful they were. So on a scale of 1 to 100, with 100 being the most hopeful, Americans who reported reading the Bible three to four times per year scored 42. People who reported reading the Bible monthly scored 59. People who reported reading the Bible weekly reported 66. People who reported reading the Bible multiple times per week reported 75. One of those who participated in the study named Tyler Vanderweel says this, Bible reading, along with other forms of community and discipleship, such as going to church or participating in a small group, appear to contribute to people's sense of well-being and happiness. So as we read the Bible, the Bible is our record of the acts of God. And in the Bible, we see that God is the God of restoration. He's the God of hope. There's no situation that's too dark for him. So that's the first way the resurrection intersects with our life. The resurrection provides us hope of restoration. The second way that it intersects with our lives is it provides us with hope of freedom. We live in a world that's subjected to the curse. I mean, think about it. You know, we have the seemingly simplest of projects that we're working on and how quickly it goes south it seems like nothing we do is easy you think about just what it takes for us to survive you know we have to have clothing and so someone has to grow the cotton or uh, create the other materials that our clothing are made of and weave them together you think about the food that we eat you know someone has to grow the crops someone has to take care of the animals you know, the crops have diseases and bugs, and, you know, there has to be uh, ways of mitigating those things. You know, in our climate, we need um, heat. We need some way to warm our homes. You know, think about s- there's so many things that are necessary for us to live, and it's so much effort just for us to stay alive with those things. wasn't always that way. The frustration that we feel living on this life. The frustration we feel when our work crumbles. Things that we spent hours, days, years working on come apart. There's a frustration of dealing with sin. You know, we all have sin that we deal with. And, you know, there's a frustration with that. There's a sin nature inside of us that wants to do the wrong thing. And yet, as believers, we have the Spirit of God that's to overrule that sinful desire. But sometimes it's a battle. Sometimes it's a struggle. And if we're not careful, sometimes sin can get the upper hand. Paul describes this frustration in Romans 8, 20-22. He says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The world is experiencing frustration. There's a bondage that sin has created on this world. And Paul speaks of the resurrection as the freedom from the curse of sin. In 54 to 56 of this chapter, he speaks the triumphant words, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The hope of the resurrection is the hope that the curse is going to be reversed. That that frustration will one day be no more. You think about heaven. What are we going to do in heaven? I think that we'll work. I think God will give us tasks to do. But it's not going to be frustrating. It's not like there's going to be thorns that come up and prick us. It's not like there's going to be bugs that come and break down the things that we worked so hard for. It's going to be fruitful. There's not going to be any of that frustration. You know, that we think about the struggle we have with sin. You know, we'll get to heaven. I don't think we're going to have that struggle. Now you think, well, so am I not going to be able to sin in heaven? I don't think you'll have one desire to sin. I don't think I'll have one desire to sin. Because when we feast on the glory of Christ and see his beauty, we will have no desire to have anything apart from him. So I think when we get to heaven and experience the resurrection of, in our bodies, we're going to have that hope. We're going to be free. Free to honor, serve our Lord. Freedom from the pains we experience in this life from our bodies. Freedom from the frustration that sin has brought upon us. And so our hope as believers is a hope for freedom from the curse. Durden Moltman in his book Experiences of God talks about that freedom. He says Easter or the resurrection is a feast. It is celebrated as the feast of freedom. For Easter is the beginning of the laughter of the redeemed and the dance of the liberated and the creative game of fantasy. Since earliest times, Easter hymns have celebrated the victory of life by laughing at death, by mocking at hell, and by making the, Lord, the lords of this world absurd. Easter is God's protest against death. Easter is the feast of freedom from death. We must keep these two things together, he says. And so resurrection provides us hope for freedom, freedom from the pains of our body, freedom from the curse of this world, freedom from the struggle of sin. And so we can hope in that freedom as we look forward to the future. The third way that the resurrection intersects with our life is that the resurrection gives us hope to persevere. Look at what he says again in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This verse is taken out of context a lot. I know I read this verse for years, and I actually had it on the wall of my office. Someone gave, gave me a plaque with this on it. You know, I always read it, and I saw it as this great encouraging verse about perseverance. Just keep going. Your work matters. You know, and that, that's awesome. That's a good thing. But I forgot the context. There's a therefore. And when there's a therefore, it means that it's dependent upon what came before. And so this call to perseverance is dependent upon what Paul says before in talking about the resurrection. Perseverance has to be fueled by hope. Perseverance is fueled by hope. Uh, perseverance is fueled by the resurrection, and that's why there's a therefore there. 
He says, in light of the resurrection, in light of the hope that you have, keep going. Stand firm. Be immovable. It's remarkable. There's been studies that have been done on animals, and uh, I'm not going to go into the studies. They were kind of very cruel. I was going to give an illustration of one of them, and then I decided not to. But there's been studies that have been done with animals, and they determined that animals are willing to engage in severe trials if they believe that the future is bright. And if they don't believe that the future is bright, oftentimes what they do is they just shut down and often die. The man by the name of Ernest Gordon, and uh, he was a dean of the chapel uh, of Princeton University for 26 years, and he received his call of, to ministry while he was in a Japanese concentration camp um, during World War II. And uh, when he was there, he was uh, set, he was, he was made to be a slave to build the Burma-Thailand Railroad. And he had trouble, he was a senior officer, and he had trouble kind of helping his other fellow prisoners understand and, and process what was going on. One time he got sick, and he went to a chaplain named Dustin Miller. Dustin Miller provided for him. He actually gave him of his rations, sacrifice for him. But he also told him something spiritually that would kind of stick with him and would be part of his call to ministry. As he nursed Gordon's body back to health, he told him, this incredible statement. He said, a man can experience an incredible amount of pain and suffering if he has hope. When he loses hope, that's when he dies. That was his call to ministry. That was what gave him the perseverance to keep going. As believers, we know the truth. We know our future. We know the hope that we have, hope of resurrection, a hope of restoration, a hope of freedom. And as believers, if we set that hope before us that there is a future that's better than the past, we can persevere trials. We can, uh, we can undergo suffering. We can sacrifice for those around us because we know what our future holds. In his book, Good to Great, Jim Collins uh, talks about a man named Admiral uh, Jim Stockdale. He was captured uh, by the enemy during the Vietnam War, and he was the highest uh, U.S. Uh, military offer, officer who was housed in what was called Hanoi Hilton a very severe, uh, brutal uh, prisoner camp. And uh, between the, the time of 1965 to 1973, he endured incredible torture. He was tortured at least 20 times. Um, he basically had no rights, had no idea when he was going to get out, if he was going to get out, if he was going to die, no idea what was going to happen to him. And yet, while he was in prison, he was very intentional about the war effort. He would send letters to his wife back home, and he would have secret codes in those letters. He would try to rally the other prisoners together and try to make sure that they were all on target with the war effort. One time, he actually uh, beat himself with a stool, cut himself with a razor purposely, because the Vietnamese were trying to use them as propaganda and try to pretend like they were treating them really well. And he said... They're not going to do that with me. They're not going to put me out as propaganda. And so he was so intentional about the war effort, even while he was in prison, even though he didn't know what was going to happen to him. And Collins had a chance to meet him afterwards, after he got out from that prison. And uh, Collins noticed that he was walking with a limp, and you know it was because he had been tortured so severely. 
And, you know, he just had war with him, the scars of what had happened to him. And so Collins asked him, so basically, how could you do that? Like, how could you persevere in a context where you didn't know what the end of the story was going to look like? You didn't know what the future held. Stockdale responded this way. He said, I never lost faith in the end of the story. He said, I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not dream. He had faith in the end of the story. He had faith that he was going to be rescued. Faith that there was hope for the future, and he was going to use that experience even to strengthen him. As believers, we know the end of the story. It's as sure as anything else in our life. It's the most sure thing that we can count on. That ought to cause us to persevere. Ought to cause us to walk forward in faith even when things get difficult. So let's say after the service I came up to you and I told you I have a million dollars and I'm going to go to the bank and I don't know how long it is going to take. It could take a while, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you a million dollars. Well, you'd probably laugh, walk out the door, rightfully so. But let's say you actually believed me. You actually believed three things. You believed that I had a million dollars, that I was going to get that million dollars, and that I was coming back to give it to you. Let's say you believed those things 100%. How long would you stay here? How long would you stay here? I mean, you might stay here for weeks if you truly believed with all of your heart that I was bringing a million dollars back for you, I mean, there would be nothing that would be too long. So Paul talks about the intensity of our perseverance. He talks about being immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because it's a sure foundation, a great reward. And as we see the resurrection of Christ, it should make us rock solid in our resolve to serve the Lord with all of our heart. Hope is a powerful thing. And hope is hard to find these days. There are so many people in this world who are so hopeless, who are crying out for anything to give them strength, anything to help them keep going. There's a poet by the name of Issa, and her story, his story is kind of tragic. Lost his mother at an early age. Uh, later on, he got married, lost a child. Had a lot of terrible things happen to him in his life. And uh, he was a Buddhist, and um, the Buddhist teachers taught him uh, that life is like dew. It's there in the morning, and then uh, it evaporates. And so he remained a Buddhist, but he longed for something more. He longed for a deeper hope. And so he wrote a haiku that went something like this. He said, the world is due. The world is due. And yet... And yet, but he didn't have an answer. He says, the world is due. The world is passing away. It's there in the morning. Then by the afternoon, it's gone. It's temporary and it's fleeting. But he didn't have the yet. As believers, we have the yet. The world is passing away. Our bodies are wasting away. But yet, there is a resurrection. There is hope. 
And no matter what we face in this life, no matter what trials may become us, there's a hope of the resurrection and spending forever with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. That gives us the strength to keep fighting, to keep persevering no matter what may come. Author and former journalist Lee Strobel says this about the resurrection. He says the resurrection is the supreme vindication of Jesus' divine identity and his inspired teaching. It's the proof of his triumph over sin and death. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers. It's the basis of Christian hope. It's the miracle of all miracles. There's hope because Jesus rose from the grave, and Paul shows us again three ways it intersects with our lives. The resurrection provides us hope of restoration. There's no situation that's too dark, too deep, too terrible for God. Provides us the hope of freedom. That one day there's a day of freedom when we'll be free from sin, free from pain, free from suffering, free from the frustration that this world places upon us. And the resurrection provides us with hope to persevere. That even, during, even when we're experiencing difficulty, there's better days ahead in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your victory over sin, death, and the grave in the resurrection. Lord, we thank you that you offer us restoration and freedom. We thank you that there's nothing that's too great for you. There's no one here whose situation is too dark, too unredeemable, that you do bring beauty out of ashes. And we look forward to a day of freedom when you'll come back, raise our bodies to new life, and we'll spend forever with you. Lord, in the interim, as we're facing difficulties, as we're living in a seemingly hopeless world, help us to walk forward in hope and faith, knowing that the future is better than the past, that the best is yet to come for those of us who are believers in Christ. In Christ's name I pray, amen.